So it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. Uh, Davy Smith should have, need not much of an introduction to this uh, audience because he has spoken here before. He's a professor of medicine um, in the Department of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at uh, University of California, San Diego, and um, has really uh, maintained a, a key clinical but also research interest uh, in, in really providing uh, care and antiretroviral uh, use as well as some basic science um, uh, in our HIV-infected um, population. And he is going to um, give the update um, from the 2018 conference uh, on uh, retroviruses and opportunistic infections. So with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Smith. Good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, so today I'm going to give a talk. Thanks for that kind introduction. Uh, I'm going to give a talk about uh, the update at CROI. I'm going to focus on antiretrovirals and strategies around those. There was a lot of uh, data presented, good science <coughs> uh, presented at CROI, and I am not going to cover all of that, but I'm going to try to focus on antiretrovirals and their uses and talk about some new science. More? There we go. Is that better? Um, and uh, what I think might be important and some good takeaways from the conference. Here's my relationships with commercial entities. So the learning objectives uh, for this talk will be able to describe data presented at the 2018 CROI pertaining to investigational drugs being developed for treatment of HIV and its complication, new advances in prevention and cure efforts, and some new data on optimal use of uh, ART. Okay, so we're gonna start off with some questions. Uh, which antiviral agent is not being investigated as an agent for PrEP? So we'll get to use our fancy text messages, please. And we have jazz music. Yes, I, actually not my playlist. We're going to use some Beyonce next time. Um, So long-acting cabotegravir, MK8591, which we'll talk about, tenofovir, alafenamide, TAF, broadly neutralizing antibodies, or darunavir rings. Okay, so it's a good mix. Um, this was sort of to throw people off. There's, we, we don't have darunavir rings, and uh, so that's one of the things I wanted to highlight. There are things that sound like darunavir rings that will be talked about in the next presentation. Uh, so, Next question. Which intervention demonstrated the hypothesized effect? And this is at the end of my presentation, and the, but we'll go over the question now. Uh, we could start the fancy music. The nutritional supplement uh, PMT-2000 5341 showed improvement in CD4 cell count, and it was based on trying to fix the microbiome in a certain way. Low-dose methotrexate improved endothelial function. Uh, addition of raltegravir to standard ART um, improved mortality for people starting therapy with low CD4 counts. And a switch from TDF to TAF-containing uh, regimens improved bone density with or without uh, bisphosphonates. So these were all the, some things that were presented at CROI, trying to get at the complications of HIV, trying to fix those. See if we can get at least a 50 responses. 
that's pretty good. Yeah, so switch from TDF to TAF, uh, improve bone density uh, with or without uh, bisphosphonates. Good job. And this one is going to be covered later. Uh, so which drug that could be used could be useful for PrEP is it is at least influenced by the level of lactobacillus in the vaginal microbiome and this topical um, application of these agents? Is it dapivirine? Is it TDF? Is it TAF? So is least influenced by the vaginal microbiome. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Is it my southern accent that's causing the problem? One more. Can we get to 50? Yes. Okay. Thanks. So, <clears throat> so it turns out that TAF is least influenced by the vaginal microbiome, but we don't have really great data, human data yet for whether or not it's going to be useful in that capacity. But some data later on in uh, the talks today, we'll sh uh, discuss that. Okay, since I'm the first talk, I thought that uh, I would have some sobering news from Croy that HIV is not over. Um, this is a NA Accord study showing the life expectancy in the United States and Canada among specific groups. I think I will use. So th they had a huge amount of people, 55,000 uh, people who started therapy, long time follow-up, they had quite a few deaths that they saw, and what they did is they looked at each uh, era, but 2005 to 2007, 2008 to 2011, 2012 to 2015, and they looked at different age groups, life expectancy at from age of 18 when starting ART. <clears throat> and basically what they saw is that men and women over time had a greater life expectancy, um, but they were pretty close, but women had a little bit better than men um, in the last era. White women and black women had pretty close. Uh, people who injected drugs versus people who did not inject drugs, the people who injected drugs uh, did not do as well. Um, uh, Non-Hispanic versus Hispanic, the Hispanic group uh, did better than the non-Hispanic group. Um, white MSM versus black MSM, the uh, white MSM did better than the black MSM in terms of life expectancy. And then HCV also had an effect with people being H HCV negative doing better across all eras. So I think we still, as these data show, we still have uh, work to do. So research is important. So let's talk about some new stuff. There wasn't a lot of new stuff at uh, CROI, but there's one that I really wanted uh, for, you, for everybody to be aware of. And this is the Merck. 8591, it's a nucleoside, it's an NRTI, but it's not a chain terminator, it's a, uh, it further, it decreases polymerization and prevents translocation. Um, but basically, I'm gonna get the laser pointer that I can see, that here, um, even after one dose, uh, it gets uh, to its target level within a day, within 24 hours, and it achieves steady state within a week. So here's the time, and pretty, pretty level out within a week. Um, what's interesting is that after the last dose, it stays within its uh, range, uh, therapeutic range, for a month after stopping. 
and it achieves uh, drug target levels. These are in uh, rectal samples, vaginal samples, and lymph nodes, um, and all those tissues. So really high levels, gets there quickly, stays there for a long time, and it's an oral drug. And these are data uh, at the uh, meeting in Paris last year that showed in rhesus macaques, it protects against uh, rectal challenges of SI, uh, SIV. So here at the top are the uh, animals that became infected, none uh, who were taking MK8591, uh, but those who did not get it uh, did. And uh, people are talking about oral dosing that might be weekly, and PrEP indicates uh, potential for maybe even small release implants that could last for a whole year. So it's, it's very uh, interesting uh, medication. So strategies, there was quite a bit of uh, discussion about new antiretroviral strategies. This one is the ANDI study that did darunavir plus rotondavir plus 3TC in those with uh, the same regimen plus TDF. And they did a randomized study. Uh, it was open label. Uh, these are very important points. These are open label. Uh, these were therapy naive individuals. Their viral load was 1,000 copies. There was no resistance to any of the study medications and they were all hepatitis B uh, negative. But out to 48 weeks, there was no difference in the amount of people who had uh, detectable viral loads between those two groups. The no other one that got uh, big, uh, got the big talk up the big screen was the switch study of Bictegravir. And uh, it's not just me, right? Can't see that. Uh, so what they did is they had a group that uh, had, was on Dolutegravir, uh, Bacavir, and 3TC. And then they did a randomized switch. So everybody was suppressed and they did a switch to uh, BIC, F, and TAF, and then the other group stayed on the same other regimen, uh, and then they looked uh, over time who had more failures. Yeah, it's maybe am I stepping on a layer? Um, so the switch um, in this group, the biologic outcomes, uh, people who had uh, less than 50 copies was 93% versus 95%, not uh, different statistically, and uh, according to FDA, FDA non-inferior, and there was no favorability for either one. So they uh, called that equivalent. The other study, which I thought was very interesting, was in uh, Africa. It was 1,800 art-naive uh, infected individuals. Um, who had really low CD4 counts, and they were started on the standard of therapy at the local place, which was uh, two, NRTI, two NRTIs plus an NNRTI. And one group got uh, added raltegravir, and the other group did not. And they wanted to see whether or not this would improve uh, mortality and also decrease iris. And the, the hypothesis here is that raltegravir would drive down the viral load faster than the regular regimen. It turned out that uh, both standard of care and raltegravir looked exactly the same, and there was no difference in iris uh, between the two groups. So it was a good idea, but it didn't seem to help that much. The other one that I thought was absolutely fascinating was this randomized controlled trial of naltrexone in people who use opioids uh, to improve viral suppression. 
And it's a randomized controlled trial, so the baselines were different because um, the study uh, sample is rather small. But in the people who got extended release uh, naltrexone, so these are people who use opioids, they're in, drug, in uh, prison, at baseline they had a 40% uh, suppression rate and they're getting ready to be discharged. They got the extended spectrum naltrexone and then when they followed up, they were 60% of them were now uh, suppressed versus the control arm with the placebo actually had a higher baseline. They got the naltrexone and only 40% of them had viral suppression at follow-up. What's interesting is the same study was done except with alcohol users who were discharged from prison and we got very similar results. So it was very um, interesting that extended spectrum, extended release uh, naltrexone might be very useful for, the, for those populations to help people remain virologically suppressed with their therapy. Then there was a very interesting study, uh, so everybody's very interested in CURE, um, and there was a, uh, I did one uh, presentation from there, and this is using a TLR7 agonist plus a broadly neutralizing antibody in, in uh, macaques, which are infected, uh, acutely infected with HIV. Here, if they did, they got them infected with SIV, they started them on therapy, and then they stopped therapy. And if they stopped therapy, all the monkeys rebounded pretty quickly. That's that black line. If they got uh, just the TLR7, and the, the hypothesis is that the TLR7 would start to bang the virus out of the infected cells early. Uh, so it would be a latency reactivating agent. And sure enough, uh, those uh, monkeys treated with TLR7 alone rebounded basically the same. If they added PGT, which is a broadly neutralizing antibody, the hypothesis would be that the, PG, that the antibody would kill the cells that are infected and perhaps keep, uh, delay uh, the rebound a little bit. And in fact, that's what happened. There is a slight delay in the red there for the monkeys that got the antibody alone. But when they added uh, the PGT, the antibody, plus the TLR7, uh, there was a delay in the rebound. In fact, some monkeys uh, didn't rebound at all. And what's interesting about you know, this, the hypothesis being that the TLR7 during the therapy sort of knocks some virus out, the PGT antibody would kill or clear those infected cells, reducing the reservoir to a point that perhaps there was control once the, once the therapy was stopped in those monkeys. So very exciting stuff. Um, here, then they took those monkeys who didn't rebound, and they took lymph nodes from those monkeys, and then they put them in a other monkey and said, okay, this is the best way to see if there's any SIV hiding out in that little lymph node, uh, did they, could they find it? And two monkeys that didn't rebound, they did have virus there, but there were still monkeys who uh, didn't rebound that they transferred that lymph node to that uh, they couldn't find any HIV in that uh, lymph node. So there was a lot of uh, new discussion on using antiretroviral therapy for PrEP. Are there other agents that we can use? So here's a, another presentation about long-acting cabotegravir, and it protects against uh, penile shiv infections. So again, back to the macaques. So here we have uh, monkeys who are uh, shiv negative, but we're going to challenge them. But we give them cabotegravir long-acting during this time. And uh, these are the ones that got the sham injection, so they got infected pretty quickly uh, after challenge with the shiv. But those who got the cabotegravir, it lasted pretty well. So three doses out to about 12 weeks. One did uh, get infected um, here at 12 weeks, and when they looked at the levels, it just had a low level of cabotegravir. So it tells us something about the drug matters and the <clears throat> 
uh, pharmacokinetics is important. There's a lot of discussion about broadly neutralizing antibodies. Is this just a very interesting science experiment, or could we actually use these clinically coming up? And one of the ways that they're looking at is whether or not it's useful for PrEP. So here is a combination of broadly neutralizing antibodies. So if one is okay, maybe more is better. Here they combined uh, antibodies, one that hit the HIV envelope up here, and another that hit it down here, so the glycan and the CD4 binding site, seeing if there's multiple ways to attack the HIV trimer before it gets into the cell. And basically, uh, at a, if they use one antibody over here, uh, here's the <coughs> percent of uninfected monkeys, and they're challenging them. And as soon, if they didn't give them any antibody, all the monkeys got infected pretty well. About three challenges, all of them were infected. If they gave one antibody, it took about seven challenges to get them all infected. But if they used two antibodies, then it took out to about 13 challenges before uh, the monkeys got infected. So this promising, maybe thinking about combination antiretroviral therapy back in the day, it required one, more than one drug. Perhaps it requires more than one antibody to get the effects that we want, and that we need the antibodies that sort of attack different places on the HIV uh, protein. So to that point, a uh, group made tri-specific. So two's good, let's do three. But not only are they going to do three, they're going to put all three of those uh, functional epitopes on one antibody. And so they sort of make a Frankenstein-type antibody, and they have one at the one binding site, another binding site, another binding site, and they put it sort of this uh, uh <coughs> engineered antibody together. If you look at just uh, VRCO1, which is the, the prototypical first broadly neutralizing antibody that was used in humans, and then what they did, wanted to see is the plasma viral load after SHIV challenge. So the monkeys got infected, but it took a little while for them to get there. The, the other antibody, when used alone, had about the same. There was some monkeys who didn't get infected. But if they used this sort of Frankenstein-ish uh, molecule, none of the monkeys got infected after the challenge. So it's very interesting. Some caveats, this is Davy caveats, is that uh, we don't really know what such an antibody would do in a person. Does a person make their own antibodies against the antibody? It is a foreign thing. Um, so those studies have to really be sorted out um, before it's used. But it's very interesting data. So <coughs> another I would be remiss if we didn't talk at least a little bit about uh, vaginal rings. And this was a very interesting study looking at open-label uh, depavirine um, comparison to historical placebo. So we're going to be using lots of historical placebo trials to figure out whether or not any new PrEP agents work because we shouldn't have controlled trials without uh, use of some agent for PrEP. And basically, historically, about HIV incidence in this local population was about 4.1. And when they used the depavirine ring, it decreased down to 1.9. And even other, so they went on to look at other uh, measures of potential incidence. And similarly, is around 3.9. So 3.9 to 4.1 in controls is pretty good. So if they can decrease down to 1.9, they showed efficacy using depavirine rings for women who were exposed. So then, what I thought was very interesting, which I don't think we've uh, 
done uh, that much research in the past, but looking at therapy for metabolic complications. HIV has tons of metabolic complications, as we are all aware, and is there anything we can do to fix them, right? So people did studies. So one idea was that they could use low-dose uh, methotrexate, and this was a randomized controlled trial, and people who were taking therapy, they were, greater than, they were older than 40, and they had an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, and their T-cells were uh, greater than 400. And they received weekly low-dose methotrexate or placebo with folic acid for 24 weeks, and they were followed for additional 12 weeks. <coughs> so unfortunately, the low-dose methotrexate uh, led to a, about a 15% increase in probability of safety events. So there was CD4 declines in that group, and there were seven pneumonias actually in that group versus the other group that didn't have those. Um, it was well tolerated, and it didn't look like there was any association with virologic uh, failure or malignancies. There was no difference in this uh, FMD, which is uh, endothelial functioning thing, so they wanted to see how um, stretchy or compliant or flexible uh, vessels are. So if the vessels aren't that compliant, we worry about heart disease and risk for further uh, stro or stroke or heart attack, and uh, there weren't the spread of these measures are just really large. So you can see each of those are the little dots and these two bars, despite these little lines that look like they're uh, going away from each other, the bars completely overlap. And so there was no real, func uh, no real effect seen with this uh, therapy. So then, uh, back to our question that we asked at the beginning, is the effect of switch from TDF to TAF, uh, plus or minus bisphosphonates? I thought this was very interesting. They used pooled data from two prospective long studies, so 144 weeks, of people who were suppressed on TAF, uh, TDF-based regimens who switched to TAF. So if you just look at, so the, everybody switched, and here's the baseline of scores of bone density at hip and at spine, and all of them increased. Uh, their T-scores, which is great. And then the red lines versus the gray lines are those who used bisphosphonate in the red and the other ones who did not use bisphosphonates. And in reality, they were pretty close together uh, at the hip, and there was slight decrease at 144 weeks for the spine. At least the spine had showed some effect for bisphosphonates um, increasing bone density. The, the, I think the jury is still out on whether or not bisphosphonates are really important here, but one of the big points is that people did increase their bone density after a switch. Um, the other one, we're going to hear about uh, microbiome later uh, from Dr. Schooley, and people are thinking, okay, the microbiome is important. Maybe we don't know exactly what it does, but it seems to do a whole bunch of stuff. Is there any way that we can start to manipulate <laughs> the microbiome to do what we would like it to do and make us a better person? So one of these is using symbiotics um, through giving nutrition. And here is a nutritional supplement containing prebiotics, probiotics, oligonutrients, and um, essential amino acids and fatty acids. So these are the things that the bacteria eat to maybe grow the ones that we want it to grow. And they did a randomized controlled trial. This table just shows that they all look basically the same between the two arms. And they wanted to look at what is the effect of this nutritional supplement on uh, CD4 counts. We'd like to have something that would increase CD4 counts for, for people. And overall, CD4 counts didn't change between the two groups. 
It also didn't change CD8 counts, and it didn't change the ratio over time. What they didn't show, which apparently they're in the process of doing, is actually looking at the microbiome and see if they actually made any difference with this supplement. So in conclusion, um, and we'll have some time for questions, is for HIV prevention, there's emerging PrEP strategies, including injecting long-acting cabotegravir. There's a TAF FTC, uh, which I didn't show you, but would be later. Uh, Merck uh, 8591, that agent seems to be very promising, and people are thinking about ways that perhaps it can be used and tested. And then combination of broadly neutralizing antibodies show lots of promise, but we still have to work out what it actually means in people. Um, HIV treatment, uh, switching, dolutegravir, bictegravir, uh, was non-inferior in that study. That drug, MK8591, has a really long half-life, and how we're going to use it in clinical practice will be very interesting, so what formulation, so I think keeping an eye on that will be uh, interesting. Raltegravir intensification for art-naive people, sounded like a good hypothesis, but didn't really pan out. HIV adherence, uh, specifically the use of extended-release naltrexone might be really good for some of our harder uh, patients who are willing to do um, something like that, uh, both for opioids and heavy alcohol use. There are bigger studies planned through the National Institute of Drug Abuse using that um, agent. HIV cure, this TLR7 agonist with uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies seemed very interesting in those monkeys, uh, just the caveat that uh, monkeys are not humans, and uh, those studies still need to be sorted out. Complications, uh, I was very excited to see that there was lots of research looking at how to fix our metabolic complications in our HIV patients, but there wasn't a lot of good news, but at least people are thinking about it and starting to come up with good research to look at these things. The one that uh, we probably knew before was that the switch uh, from TDF to TAF improved bone density, um, but the low-dose methotrexate, bisphosphonates, and nutrient supplements might not be that helpful. So I got some slides from people um, which were very helpful. So um, while we're waiting for some questions, um, I have a couple. One is I want to point out that the uh, methotrexate study was done by <coughs> Priscilla Sue and her colleagues at San Francisco General Zuckerberg UCSF. And so there are options. If, if inflammation is sort of something you're curious about, because this has been talked about for quite a while, there are research options in the Bay Area. So uh, one of the slides, again, it wasn't an encouraging result, but she has a continuing interest in this. Um, so a brief question was basically, in terms of the long-term um, naltrexone, was it strictly an adherence effect, or do you think there are maybe other effects of naltrexone? People have been sort of postulating this in the past, I think. Yeah, I, I, we don't know. Uh, they did do adherence. Uh, it looked like it was all adherence uh, measures. Um, there was also some retention issues. They came to clinic more often, but really teasing out what the mechanism was for getting that uh, increase was um, not clear yet. And, the, and naltrexone was used in the heavy alcohol users as well? Yes. And what is c the considered mechanism of that in alcohol? They, they look, oh, the mechanism? Yeah, uh, for why that would improve adherence in heavy alcohol users. We don't usually use naltrexone. Yeah, so, it, <coughs> so it's interesting that extended release naltrexone or naltrexone in general might be used for a whole bunch of addictions. So it turns out that people are also looking at it for gambling addiction. 
and sex addiction. So these are something is going along going on with this agent uh, to, that perhaps might modify how we are addicted or not addicted to various agents. And is there an age effect? And this is a, a different subject. Is there an age effect in terms of the switch from Atanavir to, to TDF to TAF? Is it as useful in the elderly, or is it mostly in the younger people who have sort of we would consider premature loss of bone density? Yeah. So that question was actually asked at Croy after the talk, and the, they qu said that they hadn't done the sub-analyses yet, but that will be quote in the paper. <laughs> so, no. And a question that came up is in the study looking at prebiotics, you know, yeah. all that. What's what were the prebiotics that were looked at, and how do you define? A prebiotic. So a prebiotic is something, and Dr. Scoodley is going to talk more about yeah. this, uh, is about uh, is what the bacteria eat um, to make, uh, it's a very complicated process of what the bacteria eat to grow specific populations in the gut. But this was a proprietary supplement. They thought that if this worked, then they didn't want anybody to know their secret sauce and that, uh, you know, they would have a way to increase CD4 cells count. So we don't really know what's in it. Usually what's in it is low, uh, small chain fatty acids um, and things like olive oil is big at increasing certain uh, bacterial populations that decrease inflammation. And a couple more questions about naltrexone. It seemed to spark a lot of interest. One was what was the dosing of the long-acting uh, naltrexone? Do you remember? I don't remember, but I can find out. I, I actually also thought that was a fascinating um, presentation. And I guess the question, the other question is about the side effects of naltrexone by decreasing endorphins. Does it increase, decrease pleasure? Where people complain about, gee, they weren't getting as much um, excitement from sex from, uh, compared to the placebo, et cetera. So in this study, they didn't look at that. But in previous studies, which may be what this person realizes, that, that people have complained about use of naltrexone decreasing uh, sexual gratification and uh, other enjoyable activities. And you meant you had some studies looking at sort of the maybe hope in the future for neutralizing antibodies. And I guess we can address this question also to uh, one of our next speakers about potential vaccines that may actually, you know, target the antibody production of those epitopes or something. Is, is that something that, I mean, because infusing, or I'm not sure how the, the um, monoclonals were administered, mm -hmm. but uh, getting them bioavailable as a prevention is not an uh, easy task. Yeah, so th that's a holy grail, right, the yeah. vaccine. So I guess there's two parts to it. There's an encouraging part that the broadly neutralizing antibodies work, right? The bad news is it's really hard to get broadly neutralizing administered, whether we can't take it, it's going to have to be injected, is there a way to get it in pill form, et cetera. The hard part for building a vaccine is to get those, to get everybody to be able, the immune system to make uh, the antibodies that could target all those different uh, components. And there's lots of work that's being done on that now, but people have been working on it for a long time. Those antibodies, how we know about those antibodies were people who were infected actually for quite a few years, and it took a lot of exposure to HIV for people's unique immune systems to actually make those broadly neutralizing antibodies. So recapitulating that in somebody who's HIV negative, I think might be quite uh, difficult. Oh, there we go. We have the dosing. Yeah, so it looks like it's 380 uh, milligrams IM every four weeks for opiate. Yeah. Thank you. And there's some adjustment for renal. Um, no, no adjustment for renal function. Good. Um, 
in the symbiotic study, uh, why didn't they look at some other parameters such as metabolic outcomes or CD? Uh, why just CD4 counts? CD, CD4 count was their primary outcome. They did have other secondary outcomes in terms of uh, inflammation. I'm sorry, I didn't show those. Uh, inflammation and uh, immune markers, and there was no effect in any in, in, in of those. And the question is, is there any data on the reprieve study, a trial looking at uh, pitavastin? I did not see any. So, okay. anyone, I don't know who asked, asked this question, but uh, do they have any information or? I have information. Yeah. I didn't ask the question. No. Oh. Okay. Do you have information? It's still in gold, so there's no initial data. No so data. And they still, they, they just opened it to 1,000 more patients. So, and it, those are the cycling differences also. There's no initial data. So the pitavastin study is still enrolling. They just expanded enrollment to 1,000 additional patients. Um, and maybe just to, so that people understand, since it's still enrolling and maybe you want to refer patients, what is the, the uh, uh, primary outcome being looked at in the study? And are you doing the study? <laughs> so I'm Annie. I'm going to, I don't know if this works. I'll introduce myself uh, in, in a moment. But the patavastatin reprieve study is the largest study that's been done in HIV positive patients. It's going to be more than 6,000 patients. And the goal is to answer the question. Uh, maybe I'll just come up here. Yeah, yeah come on. In a weird direction. Um, the, the question is, should we be putting statins in the water, right? So for people who don't already require a statin due to the, a, due to the uh, current cardiovascular guidelines, would it help to give them a statin to reduce their risk of um, stroke and, and heart disease? Because in some other high-risk populations, um, that has worked, but we don't know in HIV, so we should know, and we need to understand that. So this is a placebo-controlled study of people aged 40 to 75 who don't need a statin for another reason, um, and they get randomized to receive one or not to. So um, feel free to contact me if you're looking for a site where you want to um, enroll folks. Um, but I think we're all very much going to look forward to uh, uh, those results. And the endpoint is hard cardiovascular and cerebrovascular endpoint, so it's not lowering cholesterol, because we know that statins do that. So I guess that there is a question saying that in the meantime, there's, there's not an indication for using a statin to decrease inflammation in our uh, patients who are not interested in research trials. There's equipoise. Equipoise, yeah. which means that uh, we don't know the answer to that. Yes? Okay. Equipoise. I have one update at Croy. There was a nice talk about the v, a VA study on uh, statins. So they did looked at a whole bunch of uh, people who were HIV-infected people who were placed on statins and versus people who weren't placed on statin. It looked like it actually had a decreased cancer uh, incidence rate. And it was very unclear about why that happened. And there's a lot of biases and sort of retrospective analyses, but it was, it was interesting. Um, and just one plug is that we also, if people who are from San Diego, and I see a few people, uh, we also have a reprieve site. So if you want to <laughs> send us people. Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, it does take a little bit of legwork uh, to sometimes find clinical trials. Um, and so it, it, part of the reason that we'd like to highlight some local investigators is so that you can access them because they're quite um, accessible. Um, but a lot of times our patients come in um, having seen recruitment on bus kiosks in San Francisco. Um, so um, so it, it, I think it's an important part of what we do as clinicians to just be aware of the opportunities um, in this regard. Um, well, I think that's the bulk of the questions at this point. I want to thank you very much for an update. And, um,